Good morning, everyone. It's indeed a pleasure to be here. It's always an honor. And as always, I pray that I faithfully preach the word of God to you. The title of today's message is The Gospel According to God, Rediscovering the Most Remarkable Chapter in the Old Testament. It's the title of a book by John MacArthur. And, of course, the subject is Isaiah 53. Yes. That's the simple way of referring to Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And this book is the last of four books on the gospel that John has written. I don't know if he thinks of it as a, a series. I do. The first book that he wrote was the gospel according to Jesus, then the gospel according to the apostles, the gospel according to Paul, and the last one, the gospel according to God. Uh, a spoiler alert, the gospel is the same in all four books. It's the same for Jesus, it's the same for the apostles, it's the same for Paul, and of course it's the same for God. Now if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you're very familiar with this section of Holy Scripture, and you should be. It has been called by some scholars in the past the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel being added to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was Augustine who said back in the fifth century AD, it is not a prophecy, it is a gospel. Some people believe it should be referred to as the first gospel since it's the first one to appear in the Bible. It was Polycarp, the student and friend of Apostle John who called this section the scripture of scripture, the golden passional of the Old Testament. Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. It is a fitting name for the prophet because he foretold the gospel message in thorough, vivid, accurate detail. So far, every prediction that Isaiah has made has come down to pass. The only prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled are those that pertain to the future of Messiah, when the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations, Isaiah 61, 11. And fulfilled prophecy is how we know the Bible is true. It's the most powerful evidence that the Bible was written by God. Thanks to the discovery of the Isaiah scrolls in the cache of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, we have two Isaiah scrolls, one dated in the second century B.C. and one dated in the first century B.C. It's no doubt it was written by God. The Ethiopian eunuch riding in the chariot from read, was reading from Isaiah 53 that we read about in Acts 8.32 when Philip met up with him. And Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 in Luke 4.18 in his hometown synagogue. So we know the scrolls of Isaiah existed before the time of Christ. Evangelical scholar Gleason Archer meticulously examined the Isaiah scrolls from the Dead Sea Collection, and he wrote, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. The oldest version we had before that discovery was a thousand years younger or older. 
There was a thousand year difference between them and they were practically identical. It would take a cold, cold, cold heart of willful unbelief to study Isaiah 53 with any degree of care and conclude that it has nothing whatsoever to do with the events described in the New Testament gospel accounts. So let's read what Isaiah 52:13 to Isaiah 53:12 has to say. What does God's word tell us? Isaiah 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his words, we are, wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and have turned every one to his own way. And their Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That can't be anything but Jesus, can it? It can't be anything but Jesus that he's talking about. This text is important not only for its apologetic value, 
in terms of scriptural veracity is important not only because it points to Christ, but listen, this text is the most critical because it answers the most crucial, significant, essential, vital, weighty, paramount question that humans can ever ask. And that's that's John MacArthur stacking up all the qualifiers. And it has nothing to do with health. It has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with prosperity. And it has nothing to do with the fulfillment of success, education, morality, philosophy, sociology, politics. Because the most important question in the world has nothing to do with any of that. The most important question that transcendent question that transcends all time and places, the question of all questions is this. How can a sinner be made right with God so as to escape eternal hell and to enter eternal heaven? That is the question of all questions. And that is the question that must be answered by religion, or it's a religion from hell. That's the question. How can a sinner be made right with God so as to escape eternal hell and enter eternal heaven? If religion doesn't answer that question, or it answers it wrongly, it is a religion from hell. Isaiah 53 answers the question of all questions. So it has apologetic value, It has historical value in Christ, and most importantly, it has spiritual value. Well, then why do the Jews reject it? Because their religious system is set up so that they go about, listen to how Paul's in Romans 10 sees it, to establish their own righteousness. There are only two religions in the world, only two. The religion of human achievement or divine accomplishment. Either you do it for yourself, or God does it for you and you do nothing. It's either works or grace. The Jews' apostate Judaism for a millennia has been premised on human achievement. You earn your way through morality and religiosity. And it comes to this, they don't need a savior. That was the way it was in Jesus' day. He said, look, I didn't come to call the righteous. If you think you're righteous, I can't deal with you, is basically what he's saying. But sinners to repentance, I'm here for them. You tell a self-righteous person that they're sinful, it could get painful. Just ask Isaiah, who was eventually sawn in half by a wooden saw, tradition tells us. They don't need a savior. What they want is a deliverer from their enemies and their negative circumstances. When Jesus didn't deliver them from their enemies and their negative circumstances, they killed him. They weren't ready to hear the answer to the most important question. If you're ever going to witness to a Jew, what you want to ask them is this. Do you need a savior to rescue you from the divine judgment of your sins? That's the question. That is the ultimate moral issue of human existence. Do you need a savior to rescue you from the divine judgment for your sins? 
Well, Isaiah answers that question in the 53rd chapter. Having said all of that and read the chapter, after reading the chapter, I want to say one very important thing that I learned in reading the book. That Isaiah 53 is not primarily a prophecy about Christ. It's not. It's not a prophecy about Christ. In some ways, it doesn't even look forward. And you might say to me, why do you say that? Well, because all the verbs starting in verse, chapter 53, verse 1, all the way down to verse 11, are in the past tense. Listen, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He had no form. He was despised. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was taken away. He was cut off. It was the will of the Lord. It wasn't will be or would be. It was. It was. All the verbs are past tense. This is describing something that has already happened. How can it have already happened? Because what you have here in chapter 53 are the words of the confession that Israel will make in the future when they are redeemed. And they will remember Zechariah made this incredible prophecy in Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn as for an only son. And in the and on that day, verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 1, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. That is the promise of future salvation to Israel. It is also promised in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, and it was promised in Romans 11, 25 through 27. So all Israel will be saved. And what you have here is this amazing text of Scripture that gives us the statement that the Jews will make in the future when they look back on the very one they pierced and get it right. This is a stunning portion of Scripture. It's an amazing portion of Scripture. You can't understate the importance and the amazement of this. And they're going to start out in verse 1. First of all, they're going to say, who believed the message given to us? That's basically the way John MacArthur believes it should be translated. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know the first thing they're going to say? We didn't believe. Who believed it? Nobody believed it. And to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? What they mean by that is we didn't understand it was the right arm of God. That's a Hebrew expression for the power of God. We didn't understand it was the power of God. In other words, this is God incarnate. How did he demonstrate that? By power over disease, power over demons, power over death, and power over nature. But we didn't see it. We didn't buy it. We didn't believe it. We should have known it was the right arm of God. We didn't believe it. We didn't see it. We rejected it. Well, why would they do that? and they're going to give us an answer. It's going to pour out of their hearts, and they're going to say in verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now, you've probably read that many times. Do you know what that means? That's a sucker branch. 
We didn't see him as anything important. He's a sucker branch. Sucker branch. And what do, do, what do farmers do with sucker branches? They yank them out. He was a root out of dry ground. We didn't plant him. We didn't need him. He was, wasn't part of anything that was living. He was just a dead root sticking out of the parched crown. That's their way of saying he had a contemptible origin. He came from a nowhere town. Can anything come good out of Nazareth? Came from a nobody family. He's a carpenter's son. He didn't come from elite people. He didn't come from highbrow people. He had no education. He was totally unimpressive. His family was unimpressive. His town was unimpressive. His background was unimpressive. He was a sucker branch. He was a dead, dry root. Nothing to us. His origin was contemptible. They couldn't process the fact that the Messiah, God in human flesh, the great king long awaited, would come that way. Born in a manger, in a stable, attended by shepherds who were at the bottom rung of the social ladder, very unoppressive, contemptible, contemptible, despicable origin. And then they say, continuing verse 2, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Nothing about him was royal. Nothing about him was regal. He had no bearing. He had no persona. He had no presence. And then his end was really contemptible. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. The word men there is not the normal Hebrew word in generic sense, for men in the generic sense, but leaders. He was despised by the leaders. None of the, none of the important people affirmed him. And then at the end, he was just full of sorrow and grief. He was the kind of person that you don't even look at, like the one whom you hide your face because to look at someone would be embarrassing, like a disfigured person. They despised him. They despised his origin. They despised his presence. And they despised him at the end. He was a man of sorrows. Nobody gave him honor. Nobody gave him respect. Nobody important anyways. He had no one in his life that mattered. He hung around with a bunch of ragtag nobodies from Galilee who were mostly fishermen. The rest were uneducated Galileans. The only non-Galilean in the group was Judas from the town of Corioth. Jesus was the kind of person you just turn your face away from. That's why they rejected him. We didn't esteem him. That's an important last line. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the ultimate scorn. You know what that means in Hebrew? He was non-existent. He didn't even exist. To put it mildly, as Paul said in Romans 9, 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then when we come to verse 4, and the spirit of grace and supplication has come to them, and the light is broken, and they say this, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, we thought God was punishing him for being a blasphemer. That's what they thought. This man blasphemes. Why? Because he said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father work on the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. We thought he was being punished by God for being a blasphemer. But now we know our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. 
Then in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. That's an incredible dawning. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The future confession by the Jews is what every soul must confess to be saved. If you are a believer, you have made that confession. Jesus is no blasphemer. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. He bore your griefs. He carried your sorrows. The word pierced means exactly that. He was pierced. The word crushed means literally to be bruised. And we know he was bruised. He was hit in the face with sticks. He was punched in the face when he was in the hands of the Romans. He was brutalized with scourging. That even is referred to in verse 5, the scourging. And with his wounds, we are healed. See the detail? Psalm 22 said he would be pierced, but here it says he was pierced. He was pierced in the head with the crown of thorns. He was pierced in his hands, his feet, and his side. And we thought all these verses in verse 4, stricken, smitten, afflicted, refer to God. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But now we know differently. And this is what Zechariah 12.10 reminds us, that when we look back on him, whom they had pierced. And the Romans actually did it, but it was at the will of the Jews that it was done. When they look on him, whom they have pierced, they're going to see the truth. In verse 5, it started with the negative, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and then it turns positive. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And in that day, and this is a very important thing, in that day when they confess, they will confess not only the things that they did that were wrong, but they will go deeper than that. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right there in those verses that I read to you, 4 to 6, you have the vicarious substitutionary death of atonement of Christ. You have the doctrine of imputed sin. Our sin is imputed to Christ. This is the doctrine of justification. Him living, born under the law, living a perfect righteous life is imputed to us. This is the true doctrine of salvation. He doesn't die as a moral influence. He doesn't die as a martyr. He dies as a substitute for us not just for the transgressions, acts of sin, not just for our perversions, but all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Jews will go deeper and say, we not only have behavioral issues, we have issues of nature. Sheep act like sheep. Sheep are defenseless, stupid, dirty, and sheep do what sheep do. And the Jews in that day will not only confess their behavior, they will confess their deep-down depravity as any true sinner must. It isn't that we need a Savior for the things we do. We need a Savior for who we are to rescue us from the depravity of our nature. They get it. 
they have a full view of salvation. What an incredible realization that will be when they realize that our sins have been transferred to Jesus. This is richer than any New Testament text on the explanation of the cross. The closest we get in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verses 7 to 9 depict him as the willing sufferer. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. They knew that. They sacrificed animals every day, every single day. The morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice. They knew that sheep went to the slaughter silently, just the way they went to shearing silently. And that's how Jesus went to the cross. Never said a word to defend himself. Never said a word in defense to Herod. Never said a word of defense to Caiaphas, Annas. Never defended himself to Pilate. Silent. How does Isaiah know this? 700 years beforehand. How does he know this? How does he know about the piercings and the bruisings? How does he understand this? This is stunning. How does he know he will go silently? How does he know he won't defend himself? Innocent sufferers scream about their innocence, don't they? Even Job. You have to wade through chapter and chapter and chapter of Job saying, why are you doing this? I didn't do anything. Why are you doing this? I didn't do anything. And guilty sufferers cry out for forgiveness and mercy like Psalms 32, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Silent sufferers, you don't find silent sufferers. And when the Jews came along and decided this chapter was about them, the other thing they do is just ignore the chapter altogether. They never read it in the synagogue. They didn't want it to be about the Messiah, so they made it about Israel. The first question to ask them is this, since when have you been a silent sufferer? But this is the silence that is the result of her prayer in the garden. Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. And then in verse 8, you see, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Those are technical terms for a trial and sentencing. The word judgment there is a word that is only the the only word in Hebrew for a legal punishment. So it was the Jews who wanted him dead. It was the Romans who wanted him dead, that he was cut out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Scripture goes back to this chapter again and again to the substitutionary, vicarious death of Christ. He died in our place. And there for the first time in verse 8, his actual death is mentioned. He was cut off out of the land of the living. And it was done for the transgressions of my people. Who would do this to him? Verse 10. Yes, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Not really. They were agents. They were intermediate agents. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Not really. Who smote him? God. He was God's lamb. When John the, the Baptist introduced him in John 1, 29, 
Behold the Lamb of God. Every father picked out a lamb to offer. This was God's lamb. The smiter was God, and he did it so that he could be a guilt offering, a trespass offering. In verse 9, we get past his death, and they made his grave with the wicked. What does that mean? Criminals were thrown in the Valley of Hinnon, which was down the slope of the backside of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnon is where Gehenna comes from. It was a city dump, and the fires always burned there. And so Jesus used it as a metaphor for hell, where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. So they made his grave with the wicked because he died between two thieves. He would have gone the same way they went, but something strange happened. He was with a rich man in his death. Do you remember who that man was? Joseph of Arimathea, who came and asked for his body and put him in a brand new tomb. 700 years before he ever showed up, that little detail is recorded here. Why did God do that? Why did it matter to God? Because Psalm 16 said he would never let your Holy One see what? Corruption. Basically, the Father saying, I will not allow his body to be desecrated. So the Father works providentially through Joseph of Arimathea, and his body is taken and put in a new tomb. And then come to the end of verse 10, he will see his offspring. Something's happened here. Because when you're dead, you don't see your offspring. In that very statement, you have the resurrection of Christ. He will see his offspring. You know what that means? He will see all the redeemed of all the ages gathered around him. And he shall prolong his days. A euphemism for living forever. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And what is the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand? To put it simply, the whole purpose of redemptive history is for the father to gather a bride for his son. That's the whole purpose of redemptive history, for the father to gather a bride for his son. Why would the father want to gather a bride of his son? Because he loves him with an infinite and eternal perfect love. And salvation is to bring to glory a redeemed humanity to demonstrate the Father's love of the, to the Son. In a sense, we're not the goal of salvation. We're simply the means. He's saving us to create this massive redeemed humanity who can praise and glorify the, His Son forever and ever and ever. And the only way God can do that is through the death of His Son. So He will die. He will rise. Look at the end of verse 10 again the will of the Lord, to gather a bride for a son shall prosper in his hand. And then in verse 11, and as a result, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, see be, he shall be satisfied. God will be satisfied. Christ will be satisfied at the end of redemptive history when all the redeemed are gathered around him forever and ever. That's the confession the Jews will make. That's pretty good theology. That's like the Apostle Creed, if not better. They will one day confess the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the rejection of Christ, the substitutionary, vicarious death of Christ to justify the many. They will confess the resurrection of Christ, the intercession of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. And they will confess that the 
whole of redeemed humanity that God determined before the foundation of the world will be gathered around his son forever in his presence. They get the whole picture from glory to glory. And you say, but that's the Jews' confession. Is it right? Did they get it right? Well, let's let God close the chapter. We go from past tense verbs and plural pronouns to future tense singular pronoun. God speaks in verse 11 in the middle. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is God's summarizing confession. They're right. That's the right confession. He makes many to be accounted righteous. That sounds like Romans, doesn't it? He will justify the many by bearing their iniquities. Go to middle of verse 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He absorbed all the sins of all the redeemed transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors, which he continues to do. Which he continues to do. This is God's summation of the work of Christ expressed in the confession of the Jews. And there's one final note beginning in verse 12, exaltation. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Who's that? Who's the many? Who's the strong? That's us. We're the many, and we're the strong. How did we get to be the many and the strong? By his saving power. And what this says is essentially what Paul says. We will become heirs and joint heirs with Christ. He will divide the spoil. That is, of all the riches which he triumphantly has gained through his redemption, all the riches, all the spoil, all the portion that he has gained through his triumph, he will share with you and me. There's so much here. But when Jesus died, some people suggest he died as a martyr. Let me tell you the difference between the way Jesus died and the way martyrs die. I read a lot about the martyrs. We have the box, Fox's Book of Martyrs back there, three volumes, it's huge. I read some of the stories of the martyrs through history. And martyrs die with comfort, true Christian martyrs. Martyrs die giving testimony to the grace of God. Martyrs die singing hymns, songs, praising God, reciting scripture, praying for their persecutors. There was none of that when Jesus died. Why do martyrs die that way? Because they enjoy the sweet comfort of grace. They enjoy the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're comforted when they die because they die under grace. Jesus did not die under grace. Jesus died under the full fury of the law taken to its maximum. Incomprehensible a level under the full fury of the law. Martyrs die with a taste of heaven. Jesus died tasting hell, and he did it so that he could bring us to glory and share everything that he has with us. This should make you realize that the Christian life comes down to this, loving Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your prophetic word, so we know that it is from you, that you sent your son 
to come off the throne and live with us, to live a righteous life so that we could inherit his righteousness and he paid for our sins imputed to him. We thank you for your love for us and for your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.